Why is a question that's used, particularly when you are in school studying different things? I know that in history, we looked often at the why. Why did this event happen? What were the causes? Why did people respond this way? Often when it comes to the word why, we generally, at least I know I do, ask the question, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me, right? But have you ever just simply looked at why? Just why? Paul offers us a general idea of the why. And this week, we're going to begin unpacking what's happening here in the second epistle to the Corinthians. So Paul starts us out pretty solid in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Looking at verses 2 through 4, we find this. Verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you. I need grace because grace is that enabling power that allows me to do things that I can't do simply on my own. And in the world that we live in, I would love even more peace than what I feel on occasion. If there's something that we lack as a world as a whole, we definitely are lacking in peace. So here's Paul saying, grace be to you, peace from God our Father, Verse three, blessed be God, even the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Paul just explained why. I'm going to read verse four again who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now, that's a huge tongue twister that we need to apply for a second. And to truly apply it, I've got to go back to a Christmas many, many years ago. I was still single. And I'd gone home for Christmas, and at the time I was going home to one of my brothers. My sister-in-law approached me and said, Candace, I think something might be wrong with my mom. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, she's acting a little different. Will you please just pay close attention to her when we have dinner? I said, of course, I'd love to. Absolutely adored her parents, by the way. They were two of my favorite people. And so time for dinner comes and we're sitting there at dinner and I watch as this very refined, graceful, beautifully inside and out woman begins to eat. And to my sheer, I don't know if it was surprise, horror, a touch of like, what? As I was watching her eat, she went to get a piece of her meat. We were having like a roast that you would normally cut with a knife and then eat it. And she reached down to pick it up with her hand. And I tapped my plate and she looked up at me and I held up my fork and my knife and kind of tapped them together. And she nodded and smiled and picked up her knife and her fork and uh, commenced to eat her meat that way. That was not the only just different, odd thing that I had noticed during the meal. And so when the meal was over and her parents had left, we sat down and she said, she said, you don't think that's normal, do you? And I said, no, there's something going on. There's definitely something going on. Well, the day after Christmas, we as a collective family went into the emergency room and they began to run a series of tests. In the process of running those tests, they found a large growth inside 
of her head attached to her, her brain. They said, we need to refer you. In fact, we have already immediately to Huntsman Cancer Institute down in Utah, and you need to get there. They need to see you. They are prepared for you. We've got to act quickly. It was within a short time that we understood that Bonnie was actually battling glioblastoma, which glioblastoma, if you have ever heard of this type of cancer, then you already know that it doesn't take any prisoners and it doesn't leave anybody behind. It is terminal. And I had the opportunity to watch my sister-in-law, her family, our family, because they are intertwined, deal with and walk through this path. And I will be really honest, I had already lost my mother to cancer. And there were moments as I was watching my sister-in-law, who had lost her mother-in-law to cancer, now watching her mother pass from a different cancer, I asked that question, the why? And Paul, remember, he told us that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. But why would I be there and have an opportunity to walk alongside my sister-in-law the way that I did? Well, fast forward to the year 2019. And in 2019, one of my dear friends in my larger neighborhood, her husband was diagnosed with glioblastoma exactly a month before I was diagnosed with breast cancer. In fact, I had kept my breast cancer on the down low, not wanting people to know inside of our larger ward because I was confident that I was going to be okay and I had already walked with glioblastoma and knew what it will be like for them. And I'll never forget the day that I came out of radiation to find my sweet friend Michelle sitting there waiting to go into radiation. And because of my type of radiation, there was no mistaking what had just happened and where I was coming from. So I couldn't like downplay it like, hey, I was, I just thought I'd come check it out and see what a radiation was like, you know, it was a one-time deal, you know, first time's free. And so as I come walking out, he looks at me and he says, Candace, do you have cancer? To which I responded, yes. And he's like, what kind? And I said, I have breast cancer. He's like, so you are? And I said, I'll be here every day for the next 10 plus days running the radiation. Today was a get to know you opportunity, make sure that my radiation pillow is correct, that they're able to line everything up. And so we sat there and we talked for a minute. And it was an amazing experience for me, one that I will never forget to share that moment of joint understanding between the two of us of radiation in the exact moment but also to share an understanding of the path that he and his family were walking at the time. You see, at baptism, we made a covenant, you and I, particularly those that have been baptized. And you young women, you reference this covenant nearly weekly, if not more, via your theme. This covenant is found in Mosiah chapter 18, specifically in verses 8 and 9. And here we have Alma, he's been teaching in private and he's got people ready to be baptized. And he says this, and it came to pass that he said unto them, behold, here are the waters of Mormon for thus were they called. And now as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God and be called his people and are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Did you just catch the why? To bear one another's burdens that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, Yea, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, 
and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that you may be and even until death, that you may be redeemed of God and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that you may have eternal life. See, what we don't realize is that our choices provide us with a myriad of experiences. And God uses those experiences for our good and for others if we allow him to. Now, I'm going to be really honest. I don't know if the service that I provided during that whole time period, along with when Michelle passed, what happened there, if I even provided something that impacted the family that journey and during their loss. But what I do hope is that when judgment comes, this sweet family that I tried to serve and tried to help because of my previous experience, remember that why? I do hope that they would recommend me as someone who tried to do something good. I really do. Like if it ever said, does anybody have a recommendation that Candace really tried to do something good? I hope that this family would be like, dude, when our dad was, was suffering with glioblastoma, she was like showing up randomly with donuts and she came with fresh baked bread and she was there the week before he passed. She provided this. She did. Like, I hope that they would be able to give me, for sake of a better word, a good recommendation. If you had to be recommended based on how you live the gospel, who would you want to write that recommendation? And I'm going to ask that question one more time. If you had to be recommended based on how you live the gospel, who would you want to write that recommendation? When I was teaching seminary full-time and students were applying to Brigham Young University, if they were in my class currently, I would have the opportunity to write letters of recommendation. And I have to be really honest, I, I didn't know if people were really reading those letters of recommendation or what was really happening to them. And candidly, I didn't think there was like a lot of attention paid to them until I received a phone call regarding one of the letters of recommendation that I wrote. Now I'm going to own, I was very honest in my letters of recommendation. If I had students that weren't really coming to class or weren't really participating or didn't appear to be really committed, I would put that in my letter of recommendation. Like they may be good academically, but remember that the seminary class, at least for BYU, actually counts as an AP class. So it's a five on a four point scale. And the letter of recommendation from your seminary ins instructor is weighted. And so I took it very seriously what I was writing, and, and I'll never forget the individual who called and said, I'm calling regarding this letter of recommendation. And I'll be honest, it caught me so off guard that I said, wait, you actually read it? And he responded and he said, we read every single one. So I'm going to go back to the question. If you had to be recommended based on how you lived the gospel and you knew what was going to be read, who would you want to write that recommendation? Now, I'm not asking the question just for kicks and giggles, although I really would be interested on who you would want to write it. I would want my mom. I think she'd write me an okay letter of recommendation on the way I try to live the gospel, or, or maybe my kids might because they'd be like, yeah, my mom makes us go to church, and she makes sure that we have family home evening, and she, she's such a tyrant when it comes to saying family prayer. Just kidding. I'm not at all. But I'm asking this because Paul points something out in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. See, if we take a look at just the first three verses, listen to what he says. Do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? So Paul's saying, do you need a letter of recommendation? Do we need one from you? Then he says, ye are 
our epistles, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. You and I, the way that we live our lives is actually an epistle to the world of who we are. That's what he's saying. Ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Verse three, for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but in the spirit of the living God, not in the tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of our hearts. Is Christ therefore written in the fleshy table of our heart so that he appears in our lives? Elder Bednar in the most recent April conference put it this way, quote, my beloved brothers and sisters is the word in us are the truths of the Savior's gospel written in the fleshy tables of our hearts. Do we have those truths written inside of us? Let me show you what I mean. In ninth grade, I was required to take geography, and my geography teacher was the bomb diddly. She was amazing. Her name doesn't matter, but we're going to call her Mrs. Watson because that was her name at the time. Mrs. Watson was like my favorite. She did all kinds of really great interactive things to help us better understand the geography of the world and the climate of the world in which we lived. And one of the things that she decided to do to make class a little bit more exciting was to set up the United Nations. And so all of us were assigned a country that we were supposed to research, see the geography in that, and we were supposed to come prepared to the United Nations around a specific problem that she had presented to the class as a whole. And we were supposed to debate as the United Nations this particular problem. Well, as I got researching my country, which was located in the larger continent of Africa, I realized how politically of unrest this country was. And so my ninth grade mind began to really kind of pivot around and percolate around all of the turmoil inside of the country. And I thought to myself, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to plan a coup d'etat at this United Nations. Now, in case you don't speak at least that, that word of French, coup d'etat, a coup d'etat is, is an overthrow by force of the government. Now, this could not happen in today's high school or junior high setting because if you did what I am about to describe to you, you would probably be written up, potentially suspended, uh, and not be able to come back to school for a while without writing in a formal apology. So let us please contextualize this to the time period in which it took place, which was the mid-1980s, right? So I need, I need you to go back to 1980, uh, 1980s when you could do different things in school than you could do now. So on the day of the United Nations, of course, we were all supposed to dress up. We were all assigned our seats. We were checked into the room and the room was set up in a big, large circle. We made our little presentations. We were talking about our countries. And in the middle of the class, I pulled out a cap gun. Hence the part you cannot do now. Do not ever take any type of toy gun to school. But I pull out a cap gun, stood up and yelled, this is a coup d'etat. I am taking over. I grabbed a bunch of stuff from my colleagues and I ran, I stormed out of class. I single-handedly upended the entire period. Now, having told you that, what would my recommendation be in that moment? I had taken a teacher's lesson and everything that she prepared and was trying to teach us and single-handedly destroyed it with my coup d'etat. 
Somewhere, my ninth grade mind had forgotten the following. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Did you catch what he just said? You and I are ambassadors for Christ. So, assuming that you are a baptized member, and me as a baptized member, I made a covenant to always remember him, and in doing so, I'm his ambassador. See, the definition for ambassador is an accredited diplomat set as an official representative. So here's Paul saying, you are an official representative of Christ. You don't need a name tag to be that. You are by virtue of being a member of Christ's church. So are we holding up our end? Was my ninth grade self holding up my end? See, if I'm reconciled, I coexist in harmony or I'm compatible. The reality is, is that day in ninth grade, I was not an ambassador of Christ. I was not reconciled to my teacher and what she was trying to accomplish. And the reality is, is I totally botched up everything for everyone. So will you do me a favor? Will you proofread the epistle that you're writing and ensure that you're being an ambassador of Christ? Will you take a look at what you're writing, the recommendation through your actions that you're writing about yourself and ensure that Christ is there? You see, I did end up apologizing for my coup d'etat. However, the reality is that was not the end of my missteps in high school. So my sophomore year, I created something a little bit larger than the coup d'etat. In fact, I came across as we were approaching midterm, a copy of the biology midterm that actually turned out to be the exam key. Not wanting to keep the exam key to myself, I thought the best thing to do rather than turn it into the teacher would be to mass copy it and distribute it to all of the others inside of the larger sophomore class, which I did. I didn't worry about studying much because I had all the answers. And I knew my friends had all the answers and I knew we were going to do really well on this midterm. Collectively, we were gonna nail it. Well, I felt pretty good about everything until the night before the exam. And that night, I'm gonna own it. I started to feel really, really sick. Like totally sick to my stomach. The reality is the spirit was trying to work his angle on me. He was trying to help me to remember to be an ambassador, to remember that coup d'etat and how I'd botched it as a freshman. And he was trying to help me be reconciled with God. I'd love to tell you that I got it, but you're going to have to wait. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you were sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Hold up. He's talking about a couple of really important things there. He's talking about worldly sorrow and he's talking about godly sorrow. So what is sorrow? Well, sorrow is deep distress. And that night, I'm not joking, I began to feel a lot of deep distress. 
deep distress about weight. What have I done? Deep distress about weight, even though I had all of the answers memorized, should I actually use them? Deep distress about, was I really going to follow through with this plan that I had hatched and actually had completely influenced uh, roughly a hundred more people? Because my graduating class was like only 127. Well, I sat there in my bedroom contemplating, do I continue to memorize the answers or do I start to study? And then there was a knock at my door. And it was my mom. And she said, Candace, are you okay? Now, hold up. I'm going to read verse 10 again. For godly sorrow worketh to repentance, to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So godly sorrow is deep distress because you know you've offended God. Whereas worldly sorrow is embarrassment. It's a self-consciousness or shame. So godly sorrow leads to change. Embarrassment does not. Well, as the knock on the door came and my mother came in, she said, Candace, are you okay? And I was feeling very distressed. And it was my chance. It was a chance for me to act on godly sorrow. But I didn't. I felt bad. But I was way too embarrassed to tell my mom what I had done. And so I said, I'm just really stressed about the test. I haven't been studying. I got to just really study. And she said, well, can I help you then? And my mom sat down on the end of the bed. And for the next few hours, late into the night, she began to quiz me on all of the things that I should have been studying for biology. Well, the next morning I got up and I went in and I took the test. I'm not going to kid you. I was really surprised at how quickly some of my classmates had finished that test. And when the bell rang and we left, all of them were like high-fiving. And some of them even thanked me for helping them because they knew they'd gotten a solid A. A few days later, when we came back into class and she put up the results of how we had done, sure enough, the class average was an A. I, however, had received a D. The teacher called me in after class and began to ask me questions from the exam. And I answered the questions. And when I did, after answering about three or four of them correctly, she said, you know this. Why didn't you answer these questions correctly? Here was God giving me a second chance. A second chance to act on godly sorrow and change. Repent. Be a better version of me. However, I shrugged it off, kind of blew it off, and simply said to her, I don't know, I must have been really stressed or something. To which she responded, I still can't figure out how everybody did so well on the exam and how you did so poorly. Chance number three, I didn't respond and simply went back to my desk. You see, in that moment, I was not exhibiting godly sorrow, but rather I was more like our friends on the back end of the Book of Mormon. In Mormon chapter 2, we find our friend Mormon who is leading the Nephite armies. And as he's discussing the the Nephite armies, he says this in verses 11 through 15. Thus there began to be a mourning and a lamentation in all the land because of these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. And it came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, 
knowing the mercies and the long suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance. So he's saying, hey, they didn't have godly sorrow. For the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword of their lives, and it came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again, and I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually, where I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God, and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land, unless three hundred and forty and four years had passed away. So, we're here. It's time for you and I to go and do something. So will you go and allow godly sorrow to help you become more reconciled to God? Remember, sorrow is that deep distress, but godly sorrow is distress because you know you've offended God and you want to make it right, as opposed to worldly sorrow, which is an embarrassment or a self-consciousness or a shame that we don't want to admit. So when we feel shame, that's worldly sorrow. God is not about embarrassment or shame. In fact, those are feelings that can actually keep you from God. So if there is something that you need to fix, will you please seek Christ's help and fix it? We will allow godly sorrow to help you become reconciled in harmony with God. And will you also write the epistle of your life using Christ's template? Remember, you and I are writing our own letters of recommendation. The way that I like to think about it is that up in heaven, there are notes being taken on everything that I do right and everything that I do wrong. And my hope is that the good is so big that although the wrong is there, that hopefully the wrong is less because I have been reconciled to God via godly sorrow and for those things that maybe I haven't quite gotten to, that he is merciful to me because of the way that I was writing my epistle. See, a letter of recommendation does not mean you're perfect, but a letter of recommendation means that you are found as one worthy of. May you and I be worthy of the amazing gifts that the Savior and our loving Heavenly Father has to give to us because we are reconciled via godly sorrow and subsequently writing a strong epistle in our lives. Get out there and get writing. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Go and Do podcast. We'd love it if you'd take time to leave us a review and also click follow. We would definitely love to hear from you and you can reach us by either emailing the Go and Do podcast at gmail.com or following us on Instagram at the Go and Do Podcast. I'm going to own, it may take me a minute to get back to you on the email, but it's just because I can't get in. Anyway, would love to hear from you. The Go and Do Podcast is created by me, Candace Shu, and produced by Cami Fisher. We hope that you enjoyed your time with us and that you have a good time. Don't be a good time. Let's go and do. We'll talk soon.